Okay, good morning. I'm Jason. Welcome to South Bend City Church. We are here to talk about light that could not be overcome by darkness and life that was stronger than death and a whole new world breaking in right now. We're here to talk about Jesus and resurrection, and I'm super excited that you are here. Um, we're also uh, going to talk about an incident on the highway I-65 in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky, late at night. We're going to talk about a strange phenomenon on the concrete jungle that we call Manhattan that happens twice a year. We're going to talk about doubt and the difficulty of building a faith or a spirituality on an event that people talk about from 2,000 years ago. And don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to watch God's Not Dead. Because I don't think God's dead, but I think God might wish God were dead if God saw the movie God's <laughs> Not Dead. It's just my taste. We're going to talk about a case of mistaken identity, and we're going to talk about where we're headed as a community in the next few weeks. I'm super pumped. Uh, that you are here. By the way, this is our one-year anniversary of meeting on Sundays and Tuesdays. That's pretty cool, huh? Yeah, right? This is the first ever 1015 gathering in the history of South and City Church. You are a founder of the 1015 gathering. Congratulations. Yeah, excellent. Uh, if you're new here, I want you to know a couple of things. Uh, first of all, we are wildly committed to creating the kind of place that you can call home. It doesn't matter who you are, where you have come from, what you are like, what you believe or don't believe. It doesn't matter what kind of baggage you walked in here with. It doesn't matter what kind of chip you have on your shoulder. <laughs> None of that matters. Uh, we are radically committed to a place that you can call home, not just a sort of superficial welcome, but a deep sense of belonging. So if there's anything that I or anybody else here can do to help you experience that, I hope that you will let us know. Greeters are great for that. Anybody who seems to know what's going on around here, just ask them and we'll figure it out together, okay? Uh, on your seat when you walked in, there were a couple of things. Those are for everyone, whether you've been here from the beginning or whether you're here for the first day. Uh, that notebook is not just a little gift, but it's a little token of the kind of thing that we like to do around here, which is sometimes we like to put away the screens and pay attention in other ways. And then that print piece is just a little glimpse of who we are as a community. And uh, either the notebook or the print piece, if you want to take it with you, we'd love you to. Uh, if it doesn't help you, if you're over it, if you've read the website, if you don't like the swag, that's great. You could leave it on your seat for the next gathering coming up right around the corner. Also, uh, maybe you don't have a Bible and you'd love to follow along with us as a community as we read the scriptures. We've got Bibles right over there in that corner on the bookshelf. You're free to take one. Those have some helpful study notes in there. Uh, as you walk on your way out, just grab one if you'd like. And also on your way out today, because this is the first time that we've stacked three gatherings on a Sunday morning, it's really important that even though you probably came into this parking lot from that gate, please don't try to leave from that get gate because we, we don't want uh, games of chicken with the cars that are coming in for the 1145 gathering. So you'll leave uh, the opposite end of the parking lot and we'll kind of point you in the right direction when the gathering's done. That's all of that, I think. Uh, let's do this. Uh, we won't get weird, I promise, but let me ask you to put your feet flat on the floor if that helps you. And uh, let me just uh, lead us into a brief prayer, but before we do, if you want, close your eyes. And maybe I'll just uh, invite you to take a very big, deep breath. Let it come through your head and, and through your chest all the way down to your gut. God, you have led us through the dark night of Lent, through the hard and difficult things, and you've brought us to the morning light of Easter, and we're grateful. Some of us walked in feeling that joy, that hopefulness, and so we just bring that to you and say thank you. Some of us walked in 
still carrying a lot of baggage or still feeling like the dark night goes on. And we ask you to break in with light and hope. I don't know how or when you would do that, but I believe you might. And as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, we pray for the presence of Christ in our midst. For the presence that breaks in and breaks things open and makes us alive. So help us to pay attention now with our brains, our bodies, our spirits. Help us to bring all of ourselves to this moment so that we can pay attention to all that you do. And we pray through Christ and we all said, Amen. If you get to know me a little bit, you'll find out that fear is actually a pretty big part of my life. This is part of my personality type. Different personality types have different drivers, but for the way I'm wired, fear is actually often the thing underneath what's going on for me. Uh, And sometimes it leads to withdrawal. Like that can be the way it looks in my life. Now withdrawal is not all bad for the record. Sometimes withdrawal means that you get away, that you go get quiet, that you pay attention, that you pray, that you contemplate, that you study, and then maybe you find something good and important that you can like bring back to the community, like a gift that you can give for the common good. So I'm not saying it's always bad to withdraw or call yourself away. But for me, sometimes when I withdraw, it's because there's like deep fear going on. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you have a similar kind of personality type. Like, I think about this stuff going way back in my life. Like, I think about that thing that happened when I was in elementary school, and I discovered something that you might have discovered. And what I discovered was there's this game that human beings play called social life. And it has rules that nobody taught me, and I'm apparently not very good at it, and losing it will cost you a lot. I figured that out in elementary school. Like, I'm not one of these people who gets that game, and I felt that tendency to withdraw, right? I felt it a little later in my life, in high school, when I, there, there was a moment in my life where like, my soul like, was, seemed pretty peaceful. It was like, if you could see my soul, it might have looked like a pristine sort of snow-covered mountainside, just beautiful and calm. And then memories of some childhood trauma broke into my life, and it's like an avalanche just collapsed down that mountain, and I knew that it would bury me, and I thought it would kill me. And it was easy to be really, really afraid of memories, of experiences of like the life that I'm living, like it was really easy to be afraid and the temptation was to just like pull back to withdraw. I got afraid another moment in my life when I made a little bit of a risk. I I took a step and then it it looked like it wasn't going to go well for me because I went to college to study music uh, because that was like the one thing I thought I was good at, the one thing I could do. But while I was in college, this other thing got stirred up inside me that had been stirred up inside me before. And so to try to align myself with that thing that was getting stirred up inside me, I switched majors from music to Christian ministry. You might not have gone to a college with a major in Christian ministry. I understand that. I did. So, uh, so I switched majors in spite of almost everyone who loves me and knows me telling me it was the wrong idea. But I felt like I needed to like, follow this thing inside me. So I switched majors. And the next morning I wake up and I have just staked my future on this like, belief thing, right? And I wake up the next morning and the first thing I think as I'm staring at the ceiling and it's a thought that's never dawned on me before is, oh, I don't know if I believe in God. <laughs> yeah, I know you don't know if you're supposed to laugh at that, right? It's okay. It's funny now. It was terrifying at the time. And I remember even in that moment, I had the sense that 
even if some kind of like belief comes back to me, even if I find myself getting my hands on this again, I had some sense in that moment that I would never be able to go back to a certain kind of certainty that I felt before that moment. I'd never have the privilege again of holding on to belief in that certain kind of way, and it made me afraid because I thought I was supposed to stake my life on something like that, and the temptation was to pull it back, to withdraw, right? I remember time and time and time again being afraid when someone I love who's very close to me kept um, bringing the broken parts of his life to me, uh, the broken parts that came from uh, drug addiction and self-destruction. And for a long period of time, like every time this person I love showed up in my life, it was because that stuff was going very badly for them. And I remember being afraid because if the world can do that to people you love, if we're capable of that kind of destruction, like who would want to get out there, right? And the temptation is to withdraw. I felt this again and again and again through my life. I felt it seven years ago, which was the first time that the dream of starting something like this got stirred up inside me. My first thought was, who in their right mind would quit a good job to do that? (laughs) And the temptation to withdraw, to put my head in the sand, to sort of sink back. This is a normal thing for me. And for some of you, it's probably the case. Not everyone, not every personality type, but for some, that's maybe the case for you. Uh, What I'll tell you today is that thing inside me is one of the reasons I feel so at home in the story that the church tells on Easter Sunday. Let me show you what I mean. This is uh, in John's Gospel. This is one of the four stories in the New Testament that tells the story of Jesus. This is toward the end of that. This is just after Jesus' friends have watched Jesus get dragged away, tortured and mocked, and killed in a most terrifying, pain-inducing way, done publicly. It's done to make other people afraid. That's the intended effect of a crucifixion. It's right after all that has happened, and all they know is they've seen Jesus go to the cross and go into a tomb. And then we read in John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. I feel awfully at home in this story. (laughs) They have seen their friend, their beloved teacher, their Lord, dragged away by a mob that will probably want to come for them too and they're afraid. So I feel at home in this story, and I know this about myself a little bit, and it's, it's uh, because of what I've experienced, because of what's in this story, that I have kept this around. I'll tell you what it is in a second, if you can't figure it out. <laughs> uh, so I spend a lot of time in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I go down there for work and to c- collaborate creatively with some friends, and I have a lot of people I love down there, so I go to Nashville a lot. This has been a part of my life for several years now. And uh, I often do the drive, and it's a beautiful drive, actually, like, well, from Indianapolis to Nashville, it's a beautiful drive. <laughs> you get some hills, you get some vertical out there, and it really becomes quite, quite beautiful. And so I do that drive a lot, and one time I was coming home from Nashville, and I left very late because I was going to hit the road earlier, but a couple of friends of mine who were touring musicians were getting back from a tour that afternoon, and we really wanted to see each other before I left. So we got dinner, and I didn't leave Nashville till about 9 p.m., which was not a very smart idea. I'm driving through the middle of nowhere, Kentucky, on I-65, and this is a big old beautiful divided interstate highway, right? So there's two lanes going north, and then there's a, there's a, a median, and then there's like a huge grass ravine, right? And then there's two lanes going south, and I'm cruising, and there's not a single car on the road. It is just black in the sky and black beyond where my headlights can reach, and I'm just enjoying some solitude on the road, but I'm also getting a little bit sleepy, so I grab my phone to look for a podcast to listen to. 
And I don't know how long I looked at my phone, and I don't know if I might have actually like dipped my head or closed my eyes for a second. I just know the next thing I remember is that I look up, and there are headlights coming at me. And I'm going 79, because, you know, 9, you're fine, 10, you're mine. Can I get an amen, right? <laughs> I have no idea if that's true, if there's any law enforcement in the room, educate me later. But I'm going 79, and I see headlights coming at me. And from what I can tell, they're coming at me as fast as I am coming at them. And I yank my car to the right as quickly as possible. And this is my driver's side mirror. Yank my car over, and it spins out a little bit, and I eventually get over to the, to the, the shoulder, and I stop. And I look in my rearview mirror, and the truck is just speeding away. Um, my only thing I've been able to figure out is like maybe it's a drunk driver who got on the wrong ramp somewhere in the middle of rural Kentucky and didn't realize he was going the wrong way on a one-way, but he just keeps racing down. And even as I tell you the story, like I can feel my adrenaline like cranking again. I sit there for a moment, I watch him drive away in my rearview mirror. I check my pants. And then I drive home. I probably should have called the police. I was too shaken. I didn't know what to think of that moment. But I drive home, and I get home, and I wake up the next day, and I walk out to my car, and I look at this thing that's about three inches of horizontal away from where I was sitting um, that got hit by a car that was going like 75 miles an hour the opposite direction. And I reflect on that for a moment. And I've held on to this ever since. Not because of the fear that I felt in the moment, not because of that, like, adrenaline spike, terrifying thing. I've held on to it ever since because of another thing that settled in with me as I thought about it. I, uh, I look at this, I keep it around my house, and when I see it, I think about this conviction that keeps growing in me little by little. It's a conviction that's telling me, like, don't withdraw, man. Like, don't. Stick your head in the sand. Don't sit on the sidelines. Don't waste time. Don't waste your life. Don't withdraw. Don't be afraid because my life is not inevitable, right? It's available. Like, as long as I'm here, my life is available to me, but it's not inevitable. And it might take one bad driver on a bad road. I have this feeling stirred up inside me. It's like, don't withdraw, man. Get out there. Your life is not inevitable, but as long as you are here, it is available. And the fact that it's available means it's calling something out of you. And so I keep this bizarre relic around my house. And I read this in the story of these guys. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and side, the signs of the death that was his, the same death that they thought was coming for them, right? Because if the mob got him, it might get them. And so they see this near miss for them, and they were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Uh, I find myself at home in this story, not just because of the fear, but because of the moment here where something else is getting called out of them when the risen Christ comes and says, don't be afraid, get out there. I know they could have been afraid of the mob outside. They could have been afraid that the same people who crucified Jesus would come for them. I also can't help but wonder if they're afraid not just of what's out there, but afraid of what's in here. 
Because surely if you had asked them what kind of people they would have wanted to be when their friend and their teacher and their Lord was being dragged away, they would have said, I want to be brave, I want to be bold, I want to be faithful, I want to be courageous, I want to be the kind of person who lives up to this difficult, terrible, dark moment. But none of them were, they all ran away. So maybe they're not just afraid of what's out there, maybe they're afraid of what's in here. Maybe they're afraid of the kind of broken places inside them that caused them to just utterly fall down on the job when their friend and their Lord was being dragged away and murdered right in front of their eyes. I don't know exactly what they're afraid of, but I know there's fear here. And then Jesus comes and speaks, and the risen Christ meets them in their fear, and he says, I'm here to bring peace to you. I'm here to bring bravery to you. I'm here to send you back out there. Like, get back out there. What are you doing in this room? Get back out there. And I think about the locked door rooms of fear in my life. And I think about the moments when something has met me and made me brave again. The moments when something has broken in and said, get out there. There's still peace for you. Get out there. What are you afraid of? I think about those moments and I'm learning to see them through the light of the risen Christ, which is the name in this story, in our theology, in our tradition, for what happens when that life, when that presence meets you and breaks in and says, get out there. Don't be afraid. Now, what do you do when you get out there? What do you do when you get up out of your seat and you turn the knob on that door that you had locked and you undo the latch and you step back out into that world that you had been running from? What do you do when you get out there? Well, there's a clue here, I think. Like, what is Jesus sending them out for? Uh, The clue is uh, just a little earlier in the story. So this is chapter 20. This is uh, the same day, but earlier in the day. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Mary Magdalene's going to finish the job of preparing Jesus' body. And don't be surprised, this is not the first time that it's the women who get the job done in the scriptures. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they've put him. A little later, Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. And at this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you were looking for? And thinking he was the gardener. She said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And upon hearing her name from him, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Did you catch it? I think the clue about what we are being sent out for is in this experience of mistaken identity because she sees the resurrected Christ and she thinks it's a gardener. She sees the resurrected Christ and she thinks it's the kind of person who is here to tend the earth and make beautiful things. She sees the resurrected Christ and she thinks she sees someone who is here to make other things alive. And if you think I'm making too big a deal out of the garden, let me just make my case a little further, because this writer is obsessed with the garden. This is just a little earlier, several sentences earlier in chapter 19. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. This is not the kind of writer who gives you details you don't need. He wants you to know 
that Jesus' crucifixion happens in a garden. He wants you to know that Jesus is buried in a garden. He wants you to know that the graveyard becomes a garden. He wants you to know that the resurrected Christ is getting things going in a garden. The story wants you to know that after all this death and decay, all this entropy, all this stuff falling apart, all this uh, darkness making itself known, there's light and life right after that. He wants you to know that there is something new getting stirred up when you meet the resurrected Christ, and it might even have something to do with what you're called to when you get out of that locked door room, stop being afraid, and get back to work. Something about a garden. Now, when you read about gardens in Scripture, always think about the first garden. This is how these writers write. This is how these people think. Always think about the first garden. At the very beginning of the story, we've talked about this a lot in this community because if we get this right, we have a better chance of getting many things right. At the very beginning of the story, we read a poem about the world being here because God wants it to be here. We read a poem about life that is flourishing in the world because God wants it to flourish. We read about uh, a fancy word, but it helps, like divine generativity. Like this, this is an engine which is generating life in the world, and the name is God. And then we read that God has made us to be like him in that work because we read that men and women are here to bear the image of God. We are here to be like God in that work, and then we are placed in a garden where we read about Adam and Eve. Adam means human. Humanity placed in a garden to do gardening kind of work because we are here to be a little bit like God. And every time you and I are locked away in a, in a room of fear, the thing that's not happening is we are not out in the world making beautiful things, making wonderful things. We are not getting our hands on the soil. We are not plowing the field and planting seeds. We're not making good and beautiful things. And the world is missing out on it when we are not out there doing what we are here to do. So the resurrected Christ comes to Mary and she thinks he's a gardener and I don't think she's wrong. And then the resurrected Christ, the gardener, comes to the ones who are afraid, locked in a room, and he says, peace. Now get out there and make something beautiful. Uh, Paul writes about this idea that you and I are here to be a part of the making things beautiful in the world. In Romans, he says it like this, for the creation waits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. In 2 Corinthians, written like this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Like right now, a new world breaking in. The old has gone, the new is here. When the resurrected Christ comes into your locked door room, sees you afraid and speaks peace to you and tells you to get out there and make something beautiful, the world is waiting for it. Easter is for people who are afraid, but who don't have to be afraid. Easter tells us there is work to do. There are beautiful things to be made. There is soil to be tilled and seeds to be planted. And it's in your family, and it's in your neighborhood, and it's in your work. It's in the little interactions that seem to mean nothing to you, but they, they mean more than you know. It's waiting for us in the boring moments, in the challenging moments, in the wonderful moments. We are here to get our hands on this world and make something beautiful of it. Uh, not long after Jesus, around the year 150, 170, 200 A.D., not long after Jesus, um, there were ideas floating around, and they came together under a school of thought called Gnosticism. 
And then there's a man named Irenaeus, who was a bishop in what is modern-day France, who write, writes a book to criticize, to, to show the problem with the ideas of Gnosticism. And one of the ideas of Gnosticism that he's critiquing is this. The Gnostics are saying this world, the one that you can taste and touch and see and smell and hear, this world with good food and good wine and good sex and good music and good art, this world, this one right here, they're saying it's bad, it's no good, God has nothing to do with it, God did not create it, and our job is, is to get away from it, to run away from it. And Irenaeus sees a problem with that. And for 2,000 years, by the way, the church has, when it's at its best, seen a problem with that. And so Irenaeus, who we call one of the church fathers, writes a book against those heresies. And in that book, he writes something that gets tweeted and Instagrammed and put on bumper stickers. And sometimes you've heard it, the glory of God is man fully alive. This is a, a tighter translation. The glory of God is living humanity. The glory of God is living humanity. It's, it's us when we are alive. When we are not in a tomb marked by fear or a room locked with fear, it's us when we are alive. So no wonder the resurrected Christ, who is the glory of God, walking around on planet Earth, no wonder the resurrected Christ comes to his friends out of concern for the glory of God and says, hey, peace to you. Receive this peace. Now get out there. Stop being afraid and make something beautiful. Now, it's interesting. Uh, this is not unlike a lot of other ancient wisdom where in our modern usage, we've cut off part of it. Because uh, this is the first half of a sentence for Irenaeus, and there's a second half. And I've never seen anybody quote the second half. First half is the glory of God, is humanity living. But the second half of this, the glory of humanity, is the vision of God. So like, like when you are alive, when you are getting your hands on this world and doing your very human, good, and beautiful things, the glory of God is somehow present in that. But when you look to be tapped into that glory, to be made alive, to be made brave, to do the thing that you were made to do, it'll be the vision of God. It'll be seeing God. It'll be some, some, some way of getting your hands on the divine that will, in fact, make you alive and get you out there to do that stuff. And so that's why, like, for this community, it's important that as we celebrate you, you and all your quirks and peculiarities and all your beauty and all of who you are, and as we talk about the incredible divine potential that is waiting to be expressed when you get your hands on this world and make something beautiful out of it, we also, we come back again and again to what it means to see God, to what it means to apprehend God somehow. And for this community... Uh, it's especially in the person of Jesus that we turn to that, that we see that, that we study that, that we want to get enlivened in that, that we want to get educated in that, that we want to get shaped in that vision. Now, this can be hard, though, right? Because it can be hard to see God. Maybe you're in a hard season, and the difficulty you are experiencing, the pain that you are feeling, the abandonment that you have felt, has just made it sort of inconceivable that you would see God in the moment that you were living in. Or maybe it's not like trauma or circumstance. Maybe it's that there was a time in your life when like you had a belief in God and now that belief has sort of evaporated for you or kind of just fallen through your fingers and you can't hold on to it anymore. And for that reason, it can be sort of hard to even think of the idea of seeing God, right? Well, I want to talk about that for a minute. And to get there, I want to talk about this thing that happens on the island of Manhattan exactly twice a year. It's affectionately called Manhattan Henge. Anybody seen pictures like this? So uh, because the island of Manhattan is designed on a grid, 
and the streets run north, south, and east, west, although at an angle. Exactly twice a year, the sun sets in a way that the, the, the earth is, is aligned just right and the angles are just perfect. That the sun, as it sets, it aligns itself with one of those grid lines and it just comes perfectly down between those buildings all the way down. And it's a kind of phenomena of glory on the streets of Manhattan that captures people's imaginations and they turn to it and they stand in the middle of the street, which I've been to Manhattan and I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> but apparently there's something so beautiful and compelling about this and their Instagram feeds are going to shine so brightly with this Hashtag no filter, like they're all over this, right? So there's a mob of people who are there to catch this glimpse, this alignment, this moment when this light just sort of lines itself up with the world that they are living and it comes down in front of them. And I see that picture and what I think about is less the moments when I've been there where they are and I can see the light clearly where everything's perfectly aligned. And I think about the guy who is half a block to the left from this picture. And when he looks where these people are looking, he doesn't see the sun, he just looks into the facade of a big, ugly, gray building, right? Because if this is happening and you are walking the streets of Manhattan block by block, you'll have a moment where you'll turn perhaps to your right and, and you'll see that sun perfectly aligned, but you'll find another moment when you look and you turn the exact same angle that they're all turning and you don't see anything. And I think about that because it's been my experience sometimes. Sometimes it's people who just seem to have like, like killer faith in spite of their circumstances and they're just really good at seeing God every time, always, and I kind of think they're obnoxious, but I'm also kind of jealous. Because it's like, it's like I'm sort of mid-block, right? Mid-city block, and, and I turn the same direction they're turning, and I just see this big, dark, gray building. But I look over there, and they seem to be having a vision of something that is exciting them, that's moving them, that's animating them, that's inspiring them. And I kind of wish I could see what they see. Or sometimes it's been moments, not where my circumstances clouded that, but like where honestly, a way of believing in God hasn't made sense to me anymore. Maybe a way of holding that belief, a way of thinking about God, a way of thinking about the scriptures, like as, as those things move in your life. And I look back and I see others who are there camped out at the intersection looking at the light and they seem so happy and I'm so jealous. And part of me is tempted to go back there. Like, could I just get back there and see it that way again? This is for everyone who hears, yeah, okay, the glory of humanity is to see God, but I'm having a hard time seeing God. What should we do? Do we just try to get back there? And if I could just stretch the metaphor a little more. What I'm slowly learning is that the better move is keep walking. I don't know if you can get back there. But if you keep walking around the next corner, there might be a fresh glimpse. And I don't know if it will look exactly the same as the last one. I don't know if it will feel the same as the last one. But I believe that if you keep walking around the next corner, there might be another glimpse. I don't know when it will happen. I don't know how long you will have to walk or how dark or cold it will get. But I believe if you keep walking, there will be another glimpse. And then you'll know all over again what Irenaeus meant when he said the glory of humanity, to feel the weight of what we are is wrapped up in that vision of the divine. And it's not unlike those disciples in a room afraid, convinced they would never be able to go out there again. But the risen Christ comes and meets them in their fear and says, peace, now get out there and start tending to this world again because it's waiting for you. So um, we believe in doing things as a community, so this isn't just an idea for the day. Over the next few weeks, we're gonna talk about this kind of stuff. We're gonna talk about 
uh, bearing the divine image in the world. We're going to talk about healing for all the ways that image has been marred. We're going to talk about power because everybody has some power, and if you don't know what to do with your power, you won't know how to make something beautiful in the world. We're going to talk about race because um, our inability to uh, fully understand as a society what people of color have endured as we have scorned the image of God in them is a real problem that the church must grapple with, so we're going to go there. We're going to talk about um, the non-negotiable, indispensable revelation of God, the image of God uh, in women that we want to learn from and hear from. A note on that, we're going to bring in a speaker to help us with that. Uh, I've already shared this with our community, but with new faces here today, I want to tell you again, uh, a woman named Sarah Bessie is going to come speak to us uh, in a little over a month, and I'm so excited. I read Sarah's bio, and I thought, I think she goes to South Bend City Church. She doesn't. She lives in Canada, but I kind of thought she did for a minute, and my goal is that she doesn't go back. Like, I think she's going to like you guys, but listen, this is how she describes herself. I'm one of those happy, clappy Jesus followers with stars in her eyes. I'm an uneasy pacifist, a kingdom of God-focused woman, postmodern, liberal to the conservative, conservative to the liberal in matters of both religion and politics, a social justice wannabe trying to do some good, and a non-denominational, charismatic, recovering know-it-all, slowly falling back in love with the church. Amen. So Sarah Bessie's going to come here. She's going to talk to us specifically about how Jesus uh, is, is elevating and empowering women in his ministry. She'll be here May 6th and 8th, Sunday and Tuesday. Don't miss it. Uh, we're also going to try something new that we've been dreaming about for a while. We're going to go back to the Brick for a special event. The Brick was our old stomping grounds. It's another event venue in town. And on May 17th, it's a Thursday night, we're going to do a documentary night. We're going to put on the screen... Uh, three, four, five short documentaries. These are like 10 to 20 minutes long. And we're curating a collection of films that tell different stories that might provoke some kind of reflection about what it looks like when a human being looks a little bit like the character of God in the world. These are not supposedly Christian documentaries. Don't worry, I'm not doing God's Not Dead. I'm not going to sneak that in there. Uh, these, are, these are just great storytelling, great documentary filmmaking. Doors will open at 7. You'll be free to walk in, grab a beer at the bar if you want, or you could, we'll have non-alcoholic drinks and snacks, and then we'll sit down at 7.30. We'll watch this collage of films. I will not stand up and tell you what you're supposed to take from them, because that's not the point. Uh, we'll watch these films, and then we'll have the venue for the rest of the night, and we can talk about what those provoked, or you can talk about anything else, but it's kind of a social night, and it's a night to let some stories confront us and work on us a little bit. So that's coming up, too. Uh, and, of course, like we'll be here... Um, Every week doing these things, these gatherings, opening the scriptures, praying together, coming to Jesus' table, trying to get a glimpse together of what the divine life looks like in Jesus so it can begin to take shape in us. Now, um, I, I still have uh, some fear issues. I'm still tempted to withdraw. There's still plenty of moments when I feel very at home with the disciples in that room with the door locked. Um, but I'm slowly being converted as I remember that like, my life is not inevitable, but as long as I'm here, it is available. And I don't want to miss the presence of the risen Christ who comes to me in my fear and says, get out there and make something beautiful. Maybe you're not afraid. Maybe you're distracted. Uh, maybe you're exhausted. Maybe you're a little bit invested in the things that are breaking in the world. A lot of us are, whether we know it or not. Um, but through praying together and meditating, through being brave together, through cheering for each other, through opening the scriptures, we will get braver together. <laughs> and we will learn together how to make beautiful things. Because if you're here, 
Uh, it's a gift, and we don't want to miss it. I hope you find some people to be brave with. And if that's us, we'd be honored. But I hope you find some people to be brave with. Uh, you made it through the first 10-15. That was brave. First ever. Good job. Congratulations. Uh, and let me just end uh, by reading this to you one more time before I come to our sort of usual parting words for one another. On that evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Grace and peace be with you, friends. Amen. Happy Easter. Love you guys. See you next week.